Adam? Okay, welcome. Revelation part 20, verse, I mean, excuse me, Revelation 20, part 6. And just to let you know, those of you who watch at home and tune in and are grateful for the study, Grant, our in-house resident, just asked me, are you going to finish Revelation today? That's what he said. Can you believe it? I don't know how many, how long it's taken us, but we have covered it, and we're going to cover it even more today, and I'm kind of excited about today, because we're talking about physical versus spiritual resurrection more in depth. So let's pray, hear the Word of God, set to music, come back and get into our study after a brief moment of silence. Lord, we love you and seek you and pray that you'll be with us as we study this book, that it will have a benefit to our walk and the information will be sound. Stuff I say, which is not, we'll forget. And the stuff that is from the Spirit, that is true, that helps us to walk in greater light and knowledge according to our faith in you, will will be enhanced. We pray for those who aren't with us. Pray for those who are struggling in faith and uh, all the people who are seeking for truth, that they'll find it. And we seek these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you,
We left off talking about it last week. Uh, primarily, uh, is it physical? As most churches, Christian denoms teach, or is it spiritual? And we stopped at verse 5 of chapter 20, where it reads, But the rest of the dead, we've already talked about those who were beheaded for resisting the mark of the beast, uh, which we say, I say, is Nero reigning. Uh, they've, re they've rejected the mark of the beast. But the rest of the dead live not until the thousand years, the millennium, were finished. This is the first resurrection. And we said that resurrection of the dead is a question that is fraught with difficulty for many people. And the disputes are not only going on among the hayseed armchair philosophers like me, They've gone on with the great philosophers of all time and also with the guys currently at Yale and Harvard and places like that. Um, time and time again, the arguments are over the resurrection. And I just want to pause for a minute quickly here and point something out, something reasonable uh, about all of this stuff. God must have known or intended it to be this way, the way I see it. I mean... Come on, if he's all-knowing and the world of the faith differs on every minutia of, these, of, these, uh, of ideas relative to the topic, uh, I used to say that God wants us to be united. I still believe that. But I suggest that that is united in faith and love because I don't think it's intended, his intention was to ever have us completely united on doctrine and theology. I, I don't think it, if he intended that, we would have it exactly written and understandable. And, and so it makes me wonder about why it's left, and I'm t we're just talking about resurrection now, why the identity of the Trinity or the Godhead or Benity or monotheism or Arianism or Athanasia and all these different stuff, the resurrection, sin, salvation, baptism, 
membership, on and on and on. God has allowed that to do this. And it's just like, it's like a giant overflow of information and, and everybody has a different view. So, to me, if a person can't accept people where they are in the faith and love, then all the knowledge that we have in the world is useless. It doesn't matter how far out you are in truth and really good at it. If you can't love people who differ with you, I think we're missing the point that God is trying to have establish in all these different thoughts relative to knowledge. And if you think about it, you go back to the Garden of Eden, the tree of knowledge, the tree of knowledge of good and evil was the, the thing that they were not to eat of. Don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, come to me, we'll work it out. But they went to, to knowledge, they went to the tree of knowledge, and it seems to me like all the knowledge and opinions we have within the faith kind of serve as a, a spiritual tree of knowledge in the faith now. And every Christian has to decide, am I going to rely on this knowledge I have to make me what I am, or am I going to go to God, where the fruit is love? The tree of knowledge, the fruit is pride, and argument, and division. So something to think about, just a preface as we talk about this, don't ever lose the practice of love in exchange for different ideas on things, even things like the resurrection. So preterists, we've talked about the other views when it comes to millennialism, preterist fulfillment people maintain, and I agree with them on this point, that the resurrection was and is non-physical. Just flat out, just say it like that. It's non-physical that it is in and of the spirit and not of the body of human beings that walk around on the earth. Now, some people just, they just can't believe that. that they've just always heard resurrection, you know, we come out of the grave with our bodies. So others who uh, believe in a physical are post-millennialists and futurists and amillennialists, and they believe that the resurrection is essentially fleshly. In other words, there can be no resurrection apart from physical bodies being included. So I'm going to give you some uh, ideas as we talk today to try to help you see why I think Scripture says otherwise. And let's address this idea of resurrection of the flesh to see if it accords with the Scriptures. It's a little bit of a journey, so hang on. We can already consulted 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and to me it's clear as the air after a rainy day. It's as clear as day what Paul says there in 1 Corinthians. But we are so highly sensitive to the idea that it's got to be physical that we just don't read it the way it reads. We read it in a different way. And so I admit personally that I'm staunchly committed to the idea that the resurrection of souls is spiritual uh, and not fleshly, but test all things Hold fast to what is good, and if you believe by the Spirit that it is fleshly and it's carnal and, and the bodies will rise out of the places they've been buried, uh, then, you, then by all means do it. You're, you're truly free in that. I think the true difficulty in understanding Scripture rightly is touched upon by Paul when he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, and then 13, that he said, My preaching is not with words of man's wisdom. Uh, and he spoke that, not in words with man's wisdom do I teach, uh, but which I teach with what the Holy Spirit teaches. 
And we know then from chapter uh, 3, that verse 11 through 14, Paul says, listen, there's a spirit that's in man. That spirit teaches every human being the things of man. But there's a spirit of God, and those who don't have the spirit of God cannot comprehend the things of man. He says, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. We speak wisdom among them that are complete. Yet, not the wisdom of this world, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Paul mentions mystery often. Even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. So the fact that Paul says the message of the gospel was sometimes communicated in a mystery, a mystery, and in terms that it was hidden, hidden and mystery, um, and that it would elude comprehension from those who were not perfect. And perfect doesn't mean perfection in the flesh. It means they were mature in the flesh. They had uh, practiced or trained themselves to understand the scripture. Um, I think it's really telling that Paul couches stuff in saying mystery hidden, unavailable to those who are not mature in the flesh, having trained themselves to understand what the word is saying by the spirit. So I'd strongly suggest that this means we can't always take words at their face value. And of course, that's the entryway, the words that we get, but they open us up and we shouldn't just take them actually literally when there could be in a message, something that's deeper, Paul says you have to be trained and practiced. He says practiced by the Spirit in the things of the Word before you start to, to get it. Now, Paul says this. I don't say it. It's what he says. So regarding the resurrection, now I just introduced you to a couple terms about mystery and hidden. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. That's what he says. So he is talking about a mystery now, it's, it's mysterious to him. That's what, he, that's what he says. It can mean marvelous. It can mean wonderful. It can mean hidden. It can mean that it takes spiritual discernment to understand the mystery that's being presented. In Scripture, it means all of those things. And remember this about the resurrection. It is a mystery that can only be revealed by the wisdom of God, not the carnal mind of man. The carnal mind of man will not understand it. Now, to me, it's a very carnal. I don't think that it's by accident that we carnally believe that our carnal body is going to be raised in, uh, up. I think that's a carnal mind that understands it that way. And I think that's the reason, in part, why we continue to cling to it. The scripture's teachings about um, the resurrection, like its teachings on eschatology in general, and uh, are indeed marvelous, and they're mysterious, and they're hidden, and it does require a certain amount of spiritual discernment that is acquired by years of study and contemplation or an abundance of the Spirit, if you're a babe in Christ. The difficulty in understanding Scripture is especially true of believers like us who are Gentiles. We didn't come from the Hebrew lineage, most of us, we don't read Hebrew. We don't understand the culture of ancient Israel. And so we have men who were writing in the culture of ancient, from the culture of ancient Israel. That was still thriving at the time when the scripture was written. We don't even understand the Greek culture, let alone the Hebrew culture. So 
when you are, when we now at this time are reading concepts from a Hebrew culture, it makes it hard to really understand what is being said. For example, the language of the prophets in the Old Testament talk about fire. They talk about fire. They talk about earth dissolving. They talk about um, dissolving with an intense heat and which certainly challenges Gentile believers when we read it in English to not believe the earth is going to be melted and destroyed with intense heat and dissolved and that the heavens will be rolled up like a scroll and disappear forever. That's what Peter says. So we read it with our eyes, our ears at this time. We don't have an idea of what that meant to a Jew when they would write it and read it. And we interpret it through our eyes and our ears and we just pass it along as if it were truth. How was such language relative to that age to be taken? Was the physical creation that God made truly to be wrapped up like a scroll, the whole universe wrapped up like a scroll, vanished forever and ever? Um, as many Christians believe today. Moving on, what about the language, for instance, of being caught up? The language of what the futurists call the rapture. That is a certain language. Of course, rapture is not in scripture, but being caught up is. And so would a Christian really be changed? And would they bear away bodily at heaven with Christ at his return? Would they go up with him in their body, be changed in the twinkling of an eye in that body, and that body with flesh and bone enters into heaven with Christ, comes back with him at his return? Is that what they were meaning when they say it? Now, we can read those words in the English, but I'm just trying to get your minds prepped for what we're going to talk about. Is that what is being said? Proof is there that the early church had difficulty in gaining a command of the prophetic writings, and they, interpret scripture, they interpreted scripture in a more literal fashion. And so admittedly, the idea of a bodily rapture um, is a notion that is strongly connected to bodily resurrection. Those two are tied in with the thinking of the early church. And it gained quick acceptance in what we call the people of the early church fathers. I'm going to give you some quotes in just a second. The Apostle John, when he was on the earth, he alludes to this fact that there was misunderstanding about the resurrection relative to a story that was circulated about him. And that story was he was not going to die. That John the Beloved was never going to die. He was going to be there till Christ came. And when Christ came, he would be caught up, changed in the twinkling of an eye, but John would never experience death. That is the natural way to read the scripture. And that was something that gave rise to the belief of him rapturously being born away, taken at the coming, and never dying. Uh, but remember what was said in the gospel? Uh, it says, Peter seeing him said to Jesus, Peter seeing John, Lord, and what will you do with this man? What are you going to do with John? Peter always was worried about what was going to happen to the other guy? And Jesus said to him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to you? Now, Peter, mind your own business. You've got your call in your life. John has a call in his. And he says, Follow thou me. John writes, Then went this saying abroad among the brethren that that disciple, John, should not die. Okay, there is where we, John is saying, is addressing a problem then that we still talk about now. 
Yet Jesus said not unto him, he shall not die, but if I will that he tarries until I come, until I come, what is that to you? So John, in his own gospel, John 21, 21 through 23, he clears up up this rumor that was so easily a product of the natural mind. That's why, if you want to see a naturally minded religion, look at Mormonism. That's why they have John the Beloved still alive and three Nephites still alive, saying that they're going to be alive harvesting fields and helping people until the second coming. That's part of their mythology. Because naturally minded, they read this and they, 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 they skip over stuff and they embrace that Jesus said, what is it if he doesn't uh, go away till I come? And so they just extrapolate that out into some myth. So listen, having here reported the popular misconception among the early brethren, John entirely disavows the idea that if he would remain alive until Jesus returned, meaning that means that he would not suffer death. There is a scripture, you know it. For as it all men die, that's what it is. So shall all men in Christ uh, be made alive. All of us die. John included died. There's a death involved in the human experience. We don't escape that. So in another place in Matthew 16, 27 through 28, Jesus made a like comment. Now listen to what he says carefully. He says, for the son of man shall come in the glory of his father with his angels. Okay. And then he shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here, which shall not taste of death until, which shall not taste of death until. He doesn't say they'll never die. If you want to believe that they didn't die, you'll skip over the until. But he said, there are some which shall not taste of death, and you skip over until, uh, and I don't know what they put in there, except when they see the Son of Man or whatever they put, but they skip it over and they just say, they shall not taste of death, and the Son of Man comes back. That's not what he says. He says, there are some here standing here, standing here on terra firma, that will not taste of death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That's what Jesus said. Now, he was right or he was wrong. I think he was right. But I think those he was talking about still died. They could have died and they could have changed in the twinkle of an eye. They could have lived longer lives and died later. I don't know. But he was only saying they'll taste of death later. So, Jesus merely said some would not taste of death before until he came. Jesus would come before some tasted death. Only then would they experience physical death because all men die. We can't have that passage in scripture and then say some men don't. We all do one way or another, physically. So read together, it's clear that John was one of those people that his role was to not die until Jesus returned. Therefore, listen... The idea that Jesus coming entailed an end of physical existence. That's what is always tied to it. An end of physical existence, which the righteous are born away to heaven, not dying, was without basis. It was created. The the righteous are going to go away without dying. And that's what the rapture is all about. Someone's going to be working on the farm and the rapture will come and they'll be taken up. 
and they're not going to experience death, even though Paul says if in the case of being brought up, they will be changed. They will change from what they are here to what they would be there. There is a change. We have to die. So in light of this, we might even consider that there was to be no bodily rapture. That's something to consider, as it was originally supposed. Misunderstanding isn't limited to the rapture. Um, of course, we wrestle with the resurrection itself, and people have even in the past denied it as a possibility. I don't deny that. 1 Corinthians 15.35 tells us that the questions about the resurrection contain questions, Paul says, about what kind of body we'll have. He says, some of you ask, what kind of body will we have? And you know what he says right after that? You fools. That's what he says. The question is asked, what kind of body will we have? And he says, you fools. That's his first thing. And then he goes on and he talks all about, there's different types of bodies. There's bodies that are made for the sky. There's bodies that are made for the earth. There's bodies that, uh, and so is the, is the resurrection of the dead. There are bodies that are for living here and there are bodies for living there. They're completely different. You fool. He says it, not me. You're asking what kind of resurrection we're going to have? You fools. Because that was the question. So, stay with me. Questions of this sort also occurred among the Jews. This is an important story. So listen to it closely. The Sadducees, I know you know the story. They denied the resurrection. They were clearly convinced that if there was to be any sort of resurrection, if that was ever a possibility, it would have to be physical. They were convinced of that. Now, that was probably the popular opinion of people who believe the resurrection, and the Sadducees agreed that if there was a resurrection, a resurrection it, they would have to be physical. Okay? <laughs> because of this conception, the Sadducees believe they discovered an impossible dilemma to capture Jesus in. And they came up with him, to him, talking about the resurrection, and they said, here's a question. Under the Leverite law, there's a man who has a wife. He has seven brothers. He dies. Under the, uh, the keep the family in the family, that wife is supposed to marry the next brother in line. They go on and they tell a story. That happened seven times. Seven brothers married the same wife. Whose wife, Matthew 22, uh, 30, 22, 23, whose wife would she be in the resurrection since each had her? Remember our discussion of what marriage is? According to scripture, what marriage is, not a pastor running out and performing a service. Marriage is the union of two coming together and becoming one. That's the biblical definition of marriage. That Abraham, when he took Hagar into the tent, because Sarah told him to, he didn't have a priest come and perform a service. He knew her. So what the, what the uh, uh, Sadducees say is, listen, Jesus, we're coming to you with an impossible situation you're not going to be able to answer. We have a woman, and she was married to seven brothers. She knew seven brothers. She was married to seven brothers. In the resurrection... Whose wife will she be? What was their thinking? Their thinking was physical resurrection. Their thinking was physical existence where that marriage union would continue after this life or because it existed here, there would be some physical connection there because you have a physical body. 
So tell us, what is assumed is the notion in this question that the resurrection was physical. Who would be married to her because they all physically were one with her, which is the biblical definition of marriage? It's a great question if the resurrection is physical. Great question. What does God do? Start to play games like the LDS do about temple ceilings when a bunch of people are sealed to each other. Start to play all those games. It's a question uh, the LDS doctrine evokes from people because it's based on the same thing. The resurrection's physical. And it brings up all these questions. Wow, so then what? And of course, the standard answer is, well, God will figure it out. Well, since it was physical resurrection, it would continue with physical properties of marriage after this life on the physical earth. That was their thinking. Now, it remains unclear whether this was the popular view or not, but they came to Jesus with this idea, and nevertheless, one thing is clear. Are you ready to rumble here? You hear what Jesus says? Jesus disallowed the concept entirely, completely shut it down. Yeah, not just the idea of marriage. He shut the idea down based on the physicality of the resurrection or non-physicality of it. He did it in a couple ways. For starters, he proved to the, Pharise to the Sadducees standing there that there was a resurrection by proving that the prophets of old indeed were existing in Hades' paradise. There was life after death. The Sadducees said there's no life after death. So in one fell swoop, he's able to clear it up with them. And how does he do it? He says, as touching the resurrection of the dead, as touching it, have you not read which was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. All of them were dead. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All gone. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Meaning, there's life after this. That's what he told the Pharisees, one fell swoop. Boom, you guys are nuts. It's, he's, he's just awesome. It just opens my eyes every time. So, and when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. So bottom line right there, he has a clarification moment with the, with the Sadducees, okay? In verse 29 through 30, he proves that in the general resurrection, men will not exist as men. Women will not exist as women, Okay? If our bodies are raised from the grave, I'm assuming we'll have our man and lady parts. Okay? Not according to what Jesus says here. Matthew 22, 29, he says, You do err. You make a mistake. Knowing not the scriptures, nor the power of God for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Why? It's not physical, but are as the angels of God in heaven, not physical. That's what we're like. We are as in the resurrection, we are as the angels of God in heaven. He makes it clear. Now, if you don't have the willingness to see it, you won't see it. 
You'll come up with a reason to believe, well, Jesus came out of the grave, so we're going to. Or a bunch of other people came out of the grave, we're going to talk about that, so we're going to. And you start going down that road and you leave behind the things that are right here in the teachings of Jesus that are mysteries hidden, but the Spirit can teach you if you allow it. There would be no marriage, and just remember, that's why I describe marriage in the way I describe it. Because marriage is the union of the two here on earth. As Adam and Eve were one, Moses said, now let a, a husband leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Become one. Okay? So Jesus says there's be no marriage in the resurrection, and the resurrection was not physical, and therefore it's an impossibility for real marriage to exist in a non-material heaven at all, no matter how many brothers had had her. And he shut them down. Boom. They couldn't say anything. Awesome. Where Jewish misunderstanding about the nature of the resurrection had its place in Jesus' days, it continued on in Paul's days. That's why Paul labored so hard to correct it in 1 Corinthians. And that's why he says, you fools. That's why he starts the conversation off with that kind of derogatory line. People want to know what kind of body we'll have in the resurrection because they were trying to bring up the same thing. And so he articulately explains what the resurrection is and isn't in 15 verses 24 or whatever it is on to the end. He dispenses with the idea of a physical uh, resurrection by his statement in 1537 when he says, And that which you sow, thou sowest not that body that shall be. He made it clear. You sow in this life, but it's not that body that shall be. Thank God. And of course, when we go to the physical, we say, well, it's going to be the perfect shape. You'll have every hair that you ever had. You, all this stuff we make up because we want, we're so afraid of what it might mean outside of our logic, trying to take the mysteries and understand them, we simply, no, it's physical, it's physical, I'm going to be perfect, and, you know, all, we'll be married, and my family will be together forever, and all that. That is not what he says. I think something better is waiting. I don't think something worse, something far better. And our loved ones will certainly be part of that far better. But it's not physical. A physical body is planted, buried, but a spiritual body is raised up, or as Paul says it, so also is, is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in a natural body. It is raised in a spiritual body. And because the word body is used there, people say it's just this body, but it's spiritualized. I don't believe that is consistent with the other teachings that Paul gives in Jesus and others. So I don't see any credible way to read into the text physical bodies, and I don't see any way to tease out spiritual bodies from the text. I think they're two separate things. I think angels have spiritual bodies. I don't think angels are flesh and bone. I think they live in a heavenly realm. It would be just like saying uh, that the realm of the, under the sea is the same as the realm in, on land when it comes to our breathing. It's very different. I just see it as extremely different. So it seems that the mistake begins, perhaps, in the assumption, listen, that the resurrection is going to occur here on earth. I think that's where we begin to have the problem. 
because Jesus rose from the grave, we say we will too. We are going to rise from the grave. But Jesus had to show the nation of Israel that he had overcome sin, death, and the grave. He had to show his apostles. He had to take up his body. So he had a purpose for that. Um, but let me be, repeat that. It seems the mistake begins or began, perhaps, in the assumption that the resurrection begins to occur here on earth when we come out of our tombs or our grave. And therefore, it would be physical, we automatically say. Listen, the physical grave, get this clear, does not, cannot retain the spirits of the deceased. They are not there. They are in a different place. So there's no reason to think that that union, that immaterial counterparts called Hades, where the spirits back then departed and slept while waiting the, the resurrection, would have to somehow be reunited with the, 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 uh, the physical. The physical ends. The corruption goes to the grave. The incorruptible spirit goes to God. Then it went to Hades. Now it goes to God. Okay? So these souls were not bound to their earthly bodies. That's the beauty of it it would not be necessary for them to then be reunited with that body again. They are in a different environment, so to speak. It was just the opposite, in fact. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 50. Flesh and blood. You can do word plays on this all day long. Well, blood can't, but flesh can. No. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. It's not the physical body that inherits corruption. It's not the physical body that inherits incorruption. And then we come to a biggie. I, I, and I told Patrick, I'm going to read you a scripture you have heard a million times. Have you thought about it? Ready? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. It doesn't say present with the Lord and present with the body. It says you are present with the Lord when you are absent from the body. That's what it says. So because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, it's when we're absent from this body that we are in the presence of the Lord with our new body given to us. That's a spiritual resurrection. That flesh cannot inherit. So it's when we're absent from this body, absent from it, that we are with the Lord. I've never thought of it till I hit the scripture of these past few weeks and said, whoa, it's telling us plainly right there. Absent from the body, present from the Lord. So then I would say, back with the body, not in the presence of the Lord. Ever? Not in the presence of the Lord. Back in a body of flesh. Remember Jesus says, touch, feel my hands. Uh, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see me have. We say that means we're going to have the same thing. But flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. His was unique for that time. We'll talk about what happened to his afterward. <sighs> However valiant the apostles labors to clear up the resurrection idea throughout the scripture. Um, physical resurrection took its root. It was there with the Jews. 
It was there with Paul. It was there afterward, and it continues to be there. Um, and there's the belief that there's a bodily resurrection of the dead at Christ's return, and that gained a lot of uh, speed in the early church. And um, the errant ideas were in the creeds that the early church leaders would leave behind. They grew like a snowball. So I'm going to read them to you in order of chronology. Um, the interrogatory uh, creed of uh, Hippolytus, 215 AD, asked, do you believe in the resurrection of the body? It's one of the key fundamental uh, um, creeds of the faith today. I believe in the resurrection of the body. They always, they're adding the body. Started way back in 215. The Creed of Marcellus, 340 AD, AD, says, I believe in the resurrection of the body. So again, it's reiterated then. The Creed of Rufinius, 404 AD, is more explicit. It says, I believe in the resurrection of the flesh. So it starts to grow in its propensity towards a fleshly, out-of-the-grave resurrection. The Apostles' Creed, which was uh, uh, um, presupposed the Nicene Creed, says it's a belief in the resurrection of the body. And the Nicene Creed only states it believes in the resurrection of the dead. There's a difference there. Other creeds and confessions holding to the resurrection of the flesh include the Athanasian Creed. And in the London Confession of 1689, jumping way out, uh, it was a Baptist confession in nature. It's the resurrection of the body. And so we, we have most people believing that the, it is a bodily resurrection we have been waiting for. And although the term body is elastic, and there is play there, it could mean a spiritual body. It does mean a spiritual body for sure, but it could mean a spiritualized earthly body is how many people might read it. Um, it seems to me that that's not the case, at least in my opinion. So these creeds I just read to you that were found in, along the way in church history, they perpetuated the errors that the Jews had, the Sadducees had. They perpetuated the error that they had at the time of John's life. They perpetuated the error that Paul was addressing in 1 Corinthians 15. And um, the Gentiles, not understanding the way the Jews would think, they couldn't get it either. And so it became a very natural, a very natural way to understand resurrection. The natural mind says, I'm Sean McCraney. I live in this body. When I die, my body goes to the grave. My spirit goes to the Lord. Later on, at when Jesus returns, my spirit's going to reunite. The graves will open. My body will bow, and I will head up into the heavens. And that's the general consensus, which I suggest is uh, severely uh, misguided. We move out to the creeds today. Now I'm going to read to you from the biggest creeds and how they systematize the faith today. The Westminster Creed, that is what the basis is for all Reformed theology. Uh, in chapter 32 of the Westminster Confession, I'm gonna read it to you, it's not that, about that long. Listen to what it says, okay? Uh, it's under the title, Of the State of Men After Death and of the Resurrection of the Dead. Quote, the bodies of men after death return to the dust and see corruption. No problem there. But that's not in there. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, have an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. I'm still a fan. I believe that. 
the souls of the righteous being then made perfect in holiness are received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory. I'm still with you. No problem. Right with you, Westminster Confession. Waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. Sorry. Sorry. Waiting for the full redemption of their flesh and bone blood bodies that can't inherit the kingdom of God. And that have you know, been waiting for thousands of years for Jesus to come back, which we have proven he said was going to happen soon. We have a bunch of disconnections here. Okay? It goes on. The souls of the wicked are cast into hell where they remain in torments and utter darkness. I agree with that. If there was a hell, it wasn't completed now. It would be dark. It would not be fire. Reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledges none. So the Westminster Confession says, believers to the, behold the face of God with him until they are sent back to get their body. Unbelievers are cast into hell where it's dark and they're there until hell gives up its dead and the judgment comes and then they are assigned to the lake of fire if their names aren't written in the Lamb's book of life but it goes on. Ready? At the last day. Now that phrase at the last day is used over and over and over again by Jesus and his apostles at that day throughout the New Testament, talking about his coming. That day is at hand, Paul said. That day is upon us, John says. Peter says, we are almost in that day, right? So they were either right or wrong, but these guys say at that last day, the Westminster Confession says, such as are found alive shall not die, but be changed. And all the dead shall be raised up with the self same bodies and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. The bodies of the unjust shall by the power of Christ be raised to dishonor the bodies of the just by his spirit to honor and be made conformable to his own glorious body, end quote. So that's the Westminster Confession and what it has established for hundreds of years about what is doctrinal certainty and truth. It lays it out very succinctly there. Listening to it, you can't help but notice a confused eschatology. I'm sorry, these guys are smart guys and girls, but there is a confused eschatology there. It has the souls of the dead bypassing Hades, going, which is fine, going immediately to heaven where they behold the face of God, meaning they're in the presence of God. There they wait for the redemption of their bodies. The book of Revelation does not talk about this at all to which they are subsequently forced, I guess, or commanded to, I guess, to go back and get that body that is part of the dust of the earth now. Exiting God's presence to obtain this soul reuniting with a, a, a fleshly body. What possible purpose could there be in reuniting spirits of the saints with earthly bodies that cannot inherit the kingdom of God 
especially after such a long wait, especially after Jesus has had the total victory over sin, death, hell, resurrection from the grave. I mean, all of those souls are in a state of perfectly suited state in the presence of God. Or they're in the presence of God, beholding his face, and they're saying, I just wish you'd bring the resurrection, God. This doesn't suffice. I want my skin back. I don't believe that. I believe that because of what happened in 70 AD, we die absent from the body, present with the Lord in a spiritual body that abides in heaven. The rewards to abide in the presence of God are given then and there. They're in the presence of God. There's no coming back again. There's no waiting. There's no hoping for this limited body that we have. I didn't come up with this. Chuck Smith taught this at Calvary Chapel years ago. He said, I hope that we have a body like a spaceship that can travel through. I, I didn't agree with any of that. It was very material in nature, but I mean, a different body, like Paul describes in 1 Corinthians. Remember, we say Jesus condescended below all things. He came from the throne of God to take on flesh, which was a condescension of him condescension of him. And we say those who have gone through the trials of this life in the presence of God, enjoying full access to God, want to come back and get the, uh, the body with hips and knees and, and elbows and fingers. Only a consummate materialist worldview. It's a consummate materialist worldview uh, based off carnal thinking in my estimation. Uh, would embrace this idea. And it's a slippery slope because it messes with the eschatology altogether. But such is the garbled teaching of the Westminster Confession and those who have echoed it. Um, there's another doctrinal statement. We'll get through this one, then we'll move on. Almost done. About the resurrection of the flesh. It's called the Belgic Confession. It's also part of the Westminster Confession. It's Reformed theology. It says, quote, Finally, we believe according to God's word, that when the time appointed by the Lord is come, which is unknown to all creatures, and the number of the elect is complete, our Lord Jesus will come from heaven bodily and visibly as he ascended with great glory and majesty to declare himself judge of the living and the dead. He will burn this old world in fire and flame in order to cleanse it, then all human creatures will appear in person before the great judge, men, women, and children who have lived from the beginning until the end of the world. They will be summoned there by a voice of the archangel and by the sound of the divine trumpet. Listen, for all those who died before that time will be raised from the earth, their spirits being joined and united with their bodies in which they lived. And as those who are still alive, they will not die like others, but will be changed in the twinkling of an eye from, an in, from a corruptible to an incorruptible nature. The notion that Christ would return bodily and visibly is closely related to the bodily rapture. It's closely related to a fleshly resurrection, which has been errantly perpetuated by these thoughts that have snowballed over the years. I had breakfast this morning with uh, Father, called Father uh, Christopher at the Cathedral of the Madeline. And he's a, he's a I studied at, uh, studied at the Gregorian Vatican for seven years 
and is an expert on the morphine of doctrine over the years. And it's just like, we have no idea how much ideas have changed over a time from 230 AD to 500 AD, that window of time. It was political, it was changing and morphing. And my question to him was, how could all these people live and embrace these different ideas about God and resurrection and, and eschatology and die and be right with God if the doctrine and theology matter so much? He says, it's a great question because only some of them had the truth. If doctrine and, uh, really matters, only some of them were going to make it. I don't think it matters as much as we might think. So. Anyway, the Belgic Confession weaves all of these concepts together of a bodily rapture, a bodily resurrection, and uh, bodies, by definition, are confined to time and space. Spiritual bodies, we use the word body, spirit is not confined to time and space. Uh, we have revolutions of the sun, and we have all that. Bodies are confined to time and space. And Ephesians 4.10, that Jesus has ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. That's outside of time and space. Only spirit is unbound by time and space and can fill all things. Hence, when scripture talks about body, it's spiritual in nature. It's a spirit body. It is not that fleshly body. Uh, uh, and so... It's not by mistake that 1 Corinthians 15.45 says, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The second, the last Adam, was made a quickening spirit. That 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Now the Lord is that spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Why is there liberty where the spirit of the Lord is? Because it transcends time and space. It's not confined to material forces that are pinging upon it. When you tr leave this physical mortal by here, you translate into the spirit realm where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. You're outside time and space and you're not confined. And so the, again, the bodily resurrection is really tough for me to swallow, even just based off some of that uh, thinking. First Corinthians 2.9, some say, and we're almost done, wraps up the idea uh, of our critics. It says that in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And they say this proves that the things I'm saying are incorrect. But I don't believe that Paul's referring to Christ's form. I, I, I think the, it could be referring to the fullness of divine authority that Christ had in him. The fullness of God and his divine authority was with him at the, and it was embodied in Christ the Son. And I say that because under the Mosaic law, the Hebrews tells us nothing can be made perfect. Nothing can be made perfect, for the law made nothing perfect. But Colossians 2.10 says, But you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. The law was a shadow of things to come, but the body is Christ. So try to consider those things as we talk about it. The body is... Well, I'll leave that alone. Almost there. Um, it, once Jesus ascended... We also note that you, it required special revelation to see him when he was on earth. If you look in Acts chapter 9, I think, Paul on the road to Damascus, they said they heard a sound, but they saw no man. 
when Paul had engagements, when Peter had engagements with Jesus, when John in Revelation saw Jesus, he was always taken in the spirit. It's a realm to see Jesus that way. If you were to see Jesus, I'm not saying it's not possible, maybe it is, but I don't think you would see him with natural eyes and him sitting on your bed. I think you would see him with spiritual eyes where the mystery is unfolded. And that's what the New Testament shows is happening with everybody who has an encounter with him. It's done spiritually. So, uh, and, and, and John is always saying that Jesus uh, appeared. Appearing means something different than the physical nature. So finally, Dave brought this up last week. Matthew 27 says something interesting. It says, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent from twain from top to bottom. The earth did quake and the rocks rent. Ready? And the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy cities and appeared unto many. Holy city, by the way. Now, that just takes everything I just spent time trying to build a case for and says, all right, I think you're wrong. You know, it says right here after Jesus resurrected, it's, it's, an act, it's anachronistically presented here, but it's still saying that after he resurrected, the graves opened, people came out of the graves, walked around the city and were seen by many. I'm going to start off being radical on this. Uh, particularly verse 52 to 53, because it's get your thinking cap on with this. Um, have you ever wondered that there's no mention of this event by Paul, by Peter, by John, ever? That in the synoptic gospels, uh, Luke and Mark don't include it. John does not include it. Paul doesn't reference it when he's talking about the resurrection. John in Revelation doesn't mention it. No one mentions this, okay? Isn't it strange? Also notice the term many in these two verses in Matthew. Many seems to mean a lot to me, but we have zero mention of them who were resurrected at that time by the gospel writers. Additionally, there's not a single secular reference to this by the secular writers who were covering this period of time, Suetonius and Josephus. You would think if it, was, if it had happened and it was knowledge, someone would have said at least, and there's rumors that. No secular reference to this at all. Also, I think it's important that not one of the many, according to the record we have, appeared to an apostle. Not one of them appeared to uh, one of the living apostles at that time, where the apostle would include it in his written record. In other words, we don't have a single reference or report to it happening at all. Finally, the word used for resurrection here, this is, the, this is really important, has never been used before or after this reference to resurrection in all the New Testament. The word for resurrection is Anastasia. The word used here is not Anastasia. It's a different word. It is um, agersis. And it's the only time in all of the New Testament where the Greek word agersis is used to resurrection. Why? It does mean resurgence, 
So it does mean resurrection, which is why it's translated that way. But it's a very unique word in describing this very unique situation, which was not recorded or reported on by anybody else. My skepticism comes out in stories like this of the scripture. I know the scripture is 99.9. It's perfect. I love it. But when things like this happen and you start doing a little, you have to say, hmm, that's what happened with the Great Commission. I don't get the Great Commission. Why all of a sudden Jesus says, go baptize in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then we read of the apostles never doing that, ever. They baptize in the name of Jesus from that point forward. I wonder about insertion there. I wonder about someone saying, we got to ensure that people believe there's a resurrection, not only Jesus, but maybe, and maybe some scribe got excited. Now, this is the real cynical part first. We're going to cover the other uh, aspects next week. But the cynical side of me says, I want something more than just one reference. That's why the Johannine comma in 1 John 5 has been proven to be complete fraud, where it compares Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a Trinitarian verse stuck in there by some scribe who got excited in order to emphasize the Trinitarian nature of God. And anyone who studies scripture, who's a scholar above Yokel to scholar, they know the Johannine comma is a myth. It's not in the best manuscripts. There's one in Mark. So that would be my first approach to that passage. I want to know why no one else has ever mentioned it. The next approaches will come next week. Questions, comments. Oh, it's a cliffhanger. Insights. Patrick, you got to go up and get your own microphone these days. Oh, no, you're good. Go ahead, Patrick. Lights on. The right hand's the mic there, buddy. Yeah. Oh, this is weird. Excellent. What happened to the little fuzzy thing? Speak, my brother. We'll figure it out after. But I thought it was interesting about the resurrection because most people teach that it is physical. Yep. But my thing is about the physical is why would you go back to God and then all of a sudden God's like, I'm going to resurrect all that uh, bug poop and stuff. Because the bugs are eating your body. It's, yeah. It's, so, it's nutrients for the trees. Yeah. I wonder that too. It's spiritual. It's spirit. I believe it's spiritual. I, I truly do, I but... It's physical. But what if, my question is... is what do you make of the scripture where Jesus says, not even a head, your head will be lost. Uh, lost? Yeah, I don't know. We'll get to that. We're covering resurrection. Is it the scriptures confuse me a little compared to the spiritual? Yeah. Yeah, we'll see what that means next week here on My Three Sons. Anything else? No? Anybody else? All right, Ray. Ray, the microphone is the one at the end of the long cord. John, this is hard for me to wrap my mind around, having been in the Mormon church so long. But uh, a couple of questions for you. Uh, you indicated that 
Christ appeared to his apostles with a body, yeah. particularly doubting Thomas. Yeah. And they had to do that. He had to do that to prove to them that he was resurrected. Right. right? And yet, there's some question when he appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. Mm-hmm. No one else saw him. Mm-hmm. And that was a spiritual. Mm-hmm. So why did he have to have a body in one case and just a spiritual manifestation in the other? To me, it seems like in the first case, the apostles knew him physically, and to see him alive again as they knew him physically was important. And it was important for their witness that they went out and gave their lives for. We touched the nail prints in his hands. We know he rose from the grave. It was his body. There was not, Paul, on the other hand, wasn't one of his disciples. In fact, he was probably very, very young when Jesus died. So Paul would not have engaged in that same need of the, of the physically resurrected Christ who had ascended. I believe that when he ascended, that was, that was the end of it, with it when it comes to the physical need for the physical body. Okay. Let, let me ask you about one scripture. Yeah. This is in uh, Romans 8:11. Okay. It says, "If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life in your mortal body." Ooh, it's good. Uh, could that mean? Through the Spirit who dwells in you. Now, it talks there about bringing life to the mortal body. Right. How do you... How do you I would say that's rebirth. I would say that's being regenerated while we're in our mortal bodies. He gives us that life. I don't believe that's speaking of the resurrection, but it's a great passage. It's a tough one when you first hear it, but I think that he's talking about him giving life to us who were once dead in sin, now getting life through Christ who was raised up, and we have that life in us now. I think that's probably talking about our Christian life. Even though it refers to Christ who was raised from the dead. Yeah, because that's the imagery of his death and resurrection. He was buried for our sin. He was raised to new life. We too are dead in sin, raised to new life as Christians here on earth. So I think that is a good way to understand the, the picture. There are other passages where Paul talks about us being buried with Christ, rising to new life. And I think that is concurrent with what he's saying there. Good questions though, Ray. Very good. Sorry, Hi, Sean. Hi. So I have a question about the ascension, actually. That was a, I think it's a very important event that gets often overlooked. Because uh, Jesus rose from the, the grave uh, that Joseph of Arimathea provided three days later. But he did appear for, I think, around 40 days. 50, I think, yeah. Well, yeah, 40, 50 days. And so he did have some kind of, like, his body. He had his body. He had his body. He ate dinner with the disciples. Down in Thomas touched the, the wounds of the nails. And, uh, and then he ascended, you mentioned, into heaven, no longer, both body and spirit. 
So I guess my question is, um, you know, it only makes sense that it, it was a, mainly a spiritual body, but the question being, uh, do you think that human, like us humans, are also going to have a similar type of event, like an ascension, and that like an ascension from our bodies to the spiritual body, or is it just purely spiritual? I think the spiritual body will be a body. So I just don't think it's going to be from the, the elements of our flesh body that has corrupted. I we think won't it, have cells. We won't have, I don't think we'll have material fleshly cells, no. And that's the difference. I do think we'll have a body. But I just, and maybe it will be like Christ. Remember, he showed up and he disappeared on the road to Emmaus. Remember, he showed up in the room where it says, and the door was shut and he appeared. He was able to move and, and do things with that body. And, but it was also a body who he says, hey, it, it, you can touch and feel. A spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see me have. So I think it was a little different. And it's a great critical question of the stance I take because people say, well, what did he do with that body if it is completely spiritual when he went to heaven? Is it in God's storage? You know, they make that joke. And, and I don't know that mystery. I don't understand it. But all we can take is what Paul said about resurrection, what Jesus taught about it. And I just don't see, for us, needing to have the fleshly package glorified anymore. I think it's something different, a different kind of body. That's all. Good question, Jonathan. And Adam Guyman is either joined the, the Reich or he is, has a question. Thomas. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it seems that somewhere in between seeing Mary and seeing the apostles, he ascended to his father, and something happened there where he was able then to be touched by mortals. But prior to that, he saw Mary without having been to his father, so he was said, Don't defile me, don't touch me. Um, and uh, so I don't know what the chronology is. It doesn't tell us in scripture. And he left and went to his father and then came back. We just have to assume it. Good question, though, Adam. Well, but then why would he, uh, because if he had to ascend his father, which Jesus is God in the flesh, when you look at it that way as well, because he technically is God in the flesh. And so if you look at it in that sense, he ascended to his father, which he basically ascended to himself in his spirit. But yeah. then, you know what I'm saying? No. Uh, it, we're doing a totally different uh, conversation, which we're not going, that's, we're talking now about the nature of God and the Trinity and, and all that. But I mean, I was just trying to figure out how. Jesus, the man, ascended to his father, who was God. 
That's the best way to see it. The man Jesus resurrected now, ascended to his father. Then he came back. And then he came back and could be touched. Yeah. Great question, Adam. Happy Mother's Day, especially you mothers who are here. You know, congratulations, the, the five of you. You are real troopers to come and endure this punishment on Mother's Day. You wouldn't see fathers doing that. Fathers are like, I'm going to watch the game on Father's Day. All right, let's pray. Lord, we uh, thank you and need you and all these questions, you know, they're good because they cause us to reflect and that's what you want us to do. You want us to seek and to know you better uh, is life eternal. So help us to know you, help us to know uh, better the, the information we're discussing. We're not going to know it perfectly and as new information comes, we're willing to change and along the way, we look to you in faith as you have saved us uh, from ourselves. And we do trust, though, in the end, that we will be with you, and we will have spiritual bodies. We will be resurrected. And uh, that is all in and because of you and your life and your death and your resurrection, your ascension into the Father's presence. We love you, Lord. We pray for safety with everybody and any travels or engagements that they have today. We pray for those who are suffering in many different ways that you'll be with them. We thank you for the healings that you do and the and we thank you for the wisdom you give us in ways when you don't. We uh, pray that we will cling to you and we will look to you in faith and walk among others in love. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.